Welcome, welcome, welcome to the debut episode of Dogs in Our World. I'm your host, Adam Winston, and it feels so great to finally celebrate this moment with all of you. This episode is titled, In the Beginning, and I divided it into three parts. First, I'm going to share with you what I recently learned about the history of wolves in North America and their current status here in the United States. The second part of the show will highlight popular theories regarding the evolutionary relationship between the wolf and dog. You know, how did we get the dog from the wolf? The third and final part of this episode will explore what wolves can teach or not teach us about dogs. So let's get started. You are listening to Dogs in Our World, a show that explores the history, science, and importance of the domestic dog. Here's your host, Adam Winston. Even though my passion is for the domestic dog, as a young dog welfare professional, I find it nearly impossible to avoid the subject of wolves. Now, see, for those of you who may not know, there is this very what I call divisive and exhausting debate that rages among many dog enthusiasts. And I have discovered that nearly all of these arguments trace back to wolves, what we think we know about them, and how we should view dogs when comparing them to wolves. If you want to know more of what I'm talking about, just simply search online for the terms dog dominance theory or training uh, dog training debate you know i just googled both those search terms and a combined total of about two million results generated so you don't have to dig deep to find articles regarding this debate and how we should view dogs when looking at wolves and wolf packs so you know this show though is our opportunity to get answers from the source so instead of having yet another dog person try and tell me about wolves i set out to find someone who personally knows wolves and could talk to us about, you guessed it, dogs. Yeah, my name is Eric Wilbur, and uh, I am an animal caretaker at Wolfhaven International. Um, I've been here 10 years now. I started as a volunteer all the way back in 2005, um, was hired on in 2006, and haven't looked back yet. Eric is the man. He's the first person I have met who not only has lived with dogs, but now spends nearly 24-7 of his time with actual wolves, wolf dogs, and coyotes that reside at Wolfhaven International. In fact, after spending an afternoon with Eric, I learned there's little he doesn't do for the animals in his care. It's it's so much, um, from feeding the wolves to preparing food, uh, repairing enclosures, all all that kind of stuff. When an animal needs to go to the vet, taking that animal to the vet, which can be a tricky process, to, um, you know, managing who goes where, who's living with who, uh, managing any conflicts we have with the animals. 
Um, so all of that is kind of encompassing. As a dog nerd, it was really exciting to sit down with someone who could geek out about wolves. I had so many questions. First, I asked him about the history of wolves in North America. It's easy to say that wolves were everywhere in North America. Um, the relationship they had with the Native Americans um, generally was more of a positive relationship or at least a coexistence between the two, um, which is a, a far contrast from the uh, early European cultures and their idea of, of wolves, um, where it was more adversarial. It was protect your livestock, control the wild, you know, tame these wild beasts, you know, that sort of thing. And so when early Europeans came over from Europe, they brought with them a lot of that negativity towards towards wolves, um, particularly. And that's what kind of started the downward spiral between human persecution, habitat loss, um, the wolf population started to started to decline. Starting all the way back in the 1600s, um, they placed bounties on wolves. Um, even before Massachusetts was a state in the Massachusetts colony, they were paying people to go out and, and kill wolves. And it's crazy for us to think, but hundreds of years ago, there were some people, that was their nine to five job was go out, kill wolves, get paid for it. Um, so it's it's a far, far contrast to, uh, to what we have today. Habitat loss, human persecution, that that did a number on wolves. Um, unfortunately, there was a lot of poisoning as well. That was a tool that they used to to manage, or not, I say manage, but really it was just to kill wolves and, and get them off the landscape. Um, and so this continued, this continued, went on, went on, went on, up until the 1970s when the Endangered Species Act came out. And that was the game changer um, because then it suddenly became illegal to kill wolves. And not only illegal to kill wolves, but now we have to work to restore wolf populations. And 1973, the only places you could find wolves at that time was Alaska, Canada, and the very northern tip of Minnesota. Those were the only places wolves were left. I was delighted to learn from Eric that wolves have repopulated in quite a few states in America since the 70s. I was born in 1979, and I didn't realize that all of these wolves in the U.S. have arrived during my lifetime. Uh, I knew there were some some wolf packs in the western part of the country, but I had no idea that we had endangered red wolves near where my family lives on the East Coast. In fact, if you live in the U.S., there is a good chance that you or someone you know lives in a state that now has wolves. So you got red wolves in North Carolina, Mexican wolves in the Southwest, and you have um, the Northwest, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, and then you have the Great Lakes, um, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Then you have Canada and Alaska, and that's that's where we sit today. One of the cool things about visiting Wolfhaven International is that you can see a variety of cousins to the dog, you know, from coyotes to wolves and wolf dogs. Uh, you can see them up close, and they even care for some incredibly rare wolves. As Eric gave me a tour of the sanctuary, he schooled me on the variety of wolves that exist and introduced me to some of the few remaining Mexican and red wolves in the world. So there's two species of wolf in North America, the gray wolf and the red wolf. Um, the red wolf is just the red wolf. There's no subspecies or anything like that. Um, and then there's the gray wolf. And the gray wolf is divided into five subspecies in North America. You have Arctic wolves, tundra wolves, um, kind of the, the Great Plains wolf, the timber wolf, and then the Mexican wolf. And the Mexican wolf is the most distinct of those subspecies. Um, you can see gypsy here. Gypsy's about 
70 pounds, which is a little bit a little bit smaller. Mexican wolves are about 60 to 80 pounds on average, which is a little bit smaller than, like, say, Yellowstone wolves. Um, and they're almost all that color, that kind of brown, tawny color with kind of a black cape down their back. All Mexican gray wolves kind of look like that. Now, this is a what we call an SSP animal or a species survival plan animal. So the red wolves and Mexican wolves that we have here are incredibly endangered and there are recovery programs to help restore this animal um, into, into the wild. Um, so these animals here at Wolfhaven are the only exception to our no breeding policy. Um, now being a rescue, I didn't mention this before, but obviously we don't breed our rescued animals because we don't want to contribute to more wolves in captivity. Um, with the exception of these federally managed animals, the red wolves and Mexican wolves. Um, at one point in history, there were only seven Mexican wolves in existence, um, seven genetic founders at one point. Um, they were that close to extinction. Um, so the program has to be incredibly careful which animals are breeding with who. Um, and so in, what it comes down to is that Wolfhaven doesn't own these Mexican wolves. They're owned by Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, we just provide a home for them. And it's the Fish and Wildlife Service and this recovery program that decide who's breeding with who, who lives where, who potentially could go in the wild, um, all that stuff. Wolfhaven is truly committed to their animals. They take cautious steps to respect their privacy. I was really impressed. You know, um, Actually, not every resident is... Um, uh, visible to the visitors. Uh, they currently have over 50 wolves, wolf dogs and coyotes, but only about a dozen are available to view by the public at a time. Uh, Eric described to me the challenge of sharing this special place with others while staying true to their mission and uh, commitment to the animals. We're, we're very careful about the um, exposure we give to the wolves. Um, because we don't want to overdo it. It's it's a double-edged sword. You do want to educate people and you want them to see wolves, but being a sanctuary, um, that can't be our main focus. That can't be our main goal, um, is exposure um, of these animals more than they want. Even though only about a dozen wolves, wolf dogs, and coyotes are available to view, it didn't take long before a distant siren triggered the animals into a chorus of howling. For the first time that day, it became clear I was among a lot more than just a dozen Wolfhaven International residents. That wail of a howl you hear is from one of the sanctuary's wolf dogs. Uh, Eric invited us back to Wolfhaven in order to record a separate episode just about wolf dogs. After hearing this howl from a wolf dog named Kytus, I have a lot of questions and thoughts about the breeding of wolves with dogs. Sad note, Kytus's female partner that he shared his enclosure with when I was visiting, uh, that companion was named Lady Hawk, and unfortunately, Lady Hawk passed away at the age of 16 and a half, not long after the recording of this episode. It makes this howl from her sanctuary mate even more chilling to me. 
This episode is dedicated to Lady Hawk, that wolf, and her surviving companion, this wolf dog you hear named Kytus. Most of the animals at, at Wolfhaven International were born in captivity or for whatever reason are not currently capable of returning to the wild. But what about those wild wolves that are finally returning to America? The ones that are just now fighting for survival in, in a land where they once flourished. What can people like you and I do for wild wolves? Become become educated, just learning about wolves um, and Especially if you live in a state that has wolves, chances are good, you know, nothing happens with wolves without environmental studies, environmental impact statements, and all of this includes public comment. And so the key thing is learning when and where they are accepting public comments and, and making your voice heard. That's, that's one of the biggest things. Why should we help wolves? Uh, apparently, I found out there's all sorts of reasons as to why we want wolves to repopulate in North America. Back inside the sanctuary's education room, Eric described how wolves and other predators fill an important role that is lacking in many of our wild areas. I, I would say they'd want to help wolves because wolves are critical to the ecosystem. Um, filling that top niche, that top role of of that top predator, it's it's vital in a lot of areas. And that's something that we miss in so many of our wild animals is, or wild places is that that top predator. Um, and uh, there's, there's so much benefit to having top predators in the ecosystem, not just wolves, but bears, cougars, um, those type of animals. They have a large impact um, on, on the ecosystem. It's something we call a trophic cascade, which is you, the easy way to think of it is trickle down um, where the top predator of course, they might affect the trophic levels below them directly, which would be like deer, elk, that sort of thing, animals they eat. But it also trickles all the way down into things you wouldn't think of, like willow, um, willow plants in Yellowstone National Park. This has been a big study of wolves affecting the willow plants, where wolves affect the behavior of the elk um, in the park and the browsing pressures um, and how a lot of the browsing pressure can be relieved by simply having the elk move from place to place Um with with the threat of wolves in the area and that releases browsing pressure on the willow which allows the willow to grow which in turn benefits a lot of other species beavers especially um there and songbirds make their nests in in the willow there's there's amazing pictures out there of yellowstone of before and after wolves and how just this explosion of willow um and and how also it is affected like the aspen stands in yellowstone national park so um, a lot of it is traced back to wolves. It's hard to say for sure, yes, wolves exactly caused this, or maybe they were just a part of it, but um, that's that's what they look at with a trophic cascade is that effect a top predator has on the entire ecosystem, not just on the animals they prey on, but the entire ecosystem, which is pretty amazing. And what about the wolves back at Wolfhaven International in Washington State? How could we help them? Um, there's lots of ways to support us. Um, so, of course, there's monetarily, if you want to adopt a wolf, uh, symbolically adopt a wolf, I should say, um, or become a member. Um, a member. Membership is great because you get our quarterly Wolf Tracks magazine, um, and that talks a lot about what's going on here at the sanctuary and what's going on with with wolves in the world and, and any, any relevant news out there. Um, 
uh, I will say our Facebook page, um, since everyone and their grandmother has Facebook now, um, our Facebook page is one of our most updated uh, places to get information. We're always posting news about wolves, not just in Washington, but in Oregon and, and all over the world, really. Wolfhaven.org. Yep. So that's that's where you go for any information about Wolfhaven itself is wolfhaven.org. Um, if you'd like to come visit, that's where you need to go to make your reservation. We're not open to just people coming in um, and dropping by. You have to make a reservation to come out and, and see the wolves here at Wolfhaven. Now that Eric provided us with a crash course on the history and current status of wolves in America, I want to explore the relationship between wolves and dogs. After all, the name of the show is Dogs in Our World. So coming up next in part two, Eric is going to share with us the popular theories regarding how dogs evolved from wolves. Back after this. Adam will return with more Dogs in Our World in a moment. Be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Visit the episodes page at dogsinourworld.com for show notes. You can also support Dogs in Our World by telling your friends, connecting with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest, or by visiting the donation page at dogsinourworld.com. Welcome back. Before the break, in part one, Eric Wilbur from Wolfhaven International introduced us to the history and current state of wolves in North America, and we were treated to a wolf howl by some of the sanctuary's residents. Now, in the second part of the show, Eric is going to answer one of the biggest questions that brought me out to the sanctuary. Uh, Here's Eric and I talking about the popular theories regarding the evolutionary relationship between wolves and dogs. And if you don't mind, I'm just going to let our conversation roll. Um, So there's there's kind of three things is uh, when, where, and how. When did dogs become dogs? Uh, Or I guess I should say, when did the wolf become the dog? Where did the wolf become the dog? And how did the wolf become the dog? Um, So, you know, again, I'll say personally, I've it's tough. I don't have a straightforward, this is exactly what happened. You know, I think it would be very presumptuous of me to say, this is how things happen. So here's my take. Um, when, you know, genetics can help tell us when something happened. Uh, archeology span and fossils can help tell us when and where. Um, anthropology can help tell us how. The problem is those three things don't often, <laughs> uh, they contradict themselves. Um, and so there are some, you know, some people out there that say, oh, well, looking at this fossil and this DNA evidence, I can clearly state that dogs were domesticated 10,000 years ago. Um, there's a f- one particular fossil out there that they believe um, uh, has been aged to 36,000 years ago. And there's some people out there that feel that that is definitely a dog that was buried next to a person 36,000 years ago. Um, so th- that's kind of your range. Um, the, the longest time period ago, uh, about 36,000 years to about 10,000 years ago. Um, so that's kind of when they're looking at when, uh, one of the questions, the question that interests me the most is how, how did, regardless of when and where, how did we get wolves into dogs? And is it happening today? That, well, that's a whole nother, yeah, I didn't even think of that, but that's quite possible. If it did only happen at one point in time, then why only in that point of time? Right. Uh, well, and there's some other studies out there I know that think that maybe domestication happened a couple different times in a couple different places and dogs, you know, kind of merged together. So um, what do you think about how? 
So I think the how comes down to, do you think it was natural selection or do you think it's artificial selection? Um, if you're under the impression it's artificial selection, I mean that people went out, they got some wolf pups, they raised those those wolf puppies for whatever reason, probably for to help with hunting or, or guarding or maybe they were just cute, I don't know. But these early, this early people, these early people took wolf pups and artificially selected them. They say, I'm going to breed my wolf with your wolf. We're going to take these wolves. We're going to breed these wolves, artificially selecting the wolves until we get the dog. Um, the natural selection um, thing is do- uh, wolves domesticated themselves. And what I mean by that is they followed groups of people around. They found that humans were a source of food, that they threw their scraps of meat out, that sort of thing. And so only the animals that were the most tame, the least afraid of people could scavenge from these these places. And over time, these particular animals that were capable of scavenging off people um, bred with each other, creating more successive animals that were you know more and more comfortable with people. And over time, they kind of domesticate themselves. They become more and more tame just because that's those are the animals that are surviving in that environment is tameness is one of the things that are going to, um, you know, ensure its survival. Whereas the more fearful animals, when somebody approaches, they're going to run away first and they're not going to get the scraps of meat. Um, and so people then taking these semi tame animals that are living on the edges of human settlement, taking those animals and then domesticating them. Um, and of course there's, there's arguments on both sides. Um, I personally like to believe the more natural selection Um, because I think of artificial selection. I think of everything that goes into raising wolves and how the early hunter gatherers, even in early, um, you know, agricultural societies, they probably didn't have a lot of extra food around. They didn't have a lot of extra time. It was more survival um, oriented. Everything they did had, had to do with survival. And so me imagining them, you know, okay, maybe they do take some pups and they, they see what they can do. But to then do that generation after generation after generation, and you have to imagine these first wolves that they had, they were not immediately domesticated. So they're not probably this first, these puppies that they pull from the den, they're not immediately out there helping them catch prey and sort of things. It had to be a huge investment of time and, and effort and, and food to, to raise these animals to get them to the point that they would start being beneficial on the hunt and that sort of thing. And I can't imagine such an early people, hunter-gatherer society, like being able to do that for generations. To me, it, that doesn't seem like how it happened, if that makes sense. And so I tend to believe the more natural one. And um, there's a uh, Dr. Ray Coppinger, I don't know if you've heard of him before. Um, he, he has some interesting views um, on, on this. And he says, we can look to the village dog as kind of the missing link between wolf and, and dog. And by village dog, he means essentially feral dogs. You know, when you think about it, 80% of the dogs in the world are not living in a home. They're just feral. Or they're I believe feral. Pariah is also the name. Pariah dog. Pariah dog. Yeah, exactly. And he's saying that here's these these, you know, village dogs, and they're doing exactly what he thinks, you know, wolves were doing way back when they were on the periphery. They were, you know, not anybody's pet, but at the same time, they're hanging around human settlements. Um, And it'd be much easier to take those animals and breed them and and domesticate them than it would be pups straight from the den. Um, That's, that's kind of, kind of what I feel. That's, if, if I had to take a swing at it, 
I would say that's how it happened. But of course, like I said, I got to swing away. I got to <laughs> preface it that I, I have no idea. You know, who, who knows? There we have it. Yeah, I may not have the exact answer, but at least I now have a better idea of how we got the dog from the wolf. What do you think? What do you think? Was it natural or artificial selection? Uh, do you live somewhere that has pariah or village dogs that we, we mentioned? I'd love to hear all of your guys' thoughts on this over at dogsinourworld.com. Uh, Eric also warned me about relying too heavily on genetic research, which is still a rather new tool in the uh, hunt for answers to the question of how, when, and where dogs began. Canis supus is uh, how, we, how we need to look at the, all, all the dogs and the wolves in the world. Um, people say, oh, well, genetics can tell us this and that. And genetics at this point, tr- even telling the difference between a dog and a wolf is difficult. Um, let alone teasing out who's more closely related to who, who's, you know, more has more recent wolf ancestors. It's it's incredibly difficult. And so, kind of the the running joke is instead of Canis lupus, the scientific name for the wolf, the joke is Canis supus. When you're talking about genes, is because it's just kind of this big tomato soup bowl of genes. And it's if you have a bowl of tomato soup, trying to pick out the tomato parts of the soup is is impossible. In fact, uh, to my surprise. Not only is it often difficult to get reliable answers using genetic testing, an interesting and related fact I learned while writing this episode is that humans reportedly share over 80% of their genes with dogs. 80% we share with dogs. Chimpanzees are 96 to 98% genetically similar to humans. Wow. So I'll post these online articles that I was looking at um, to our show notes. But for now, let's get back on track. Back in part one of this episode, Eric introduced us to wolves. We just wrapped part two of the show where we examined the theories regarding how dogs came from wolves and the challenges faced in finding concrete answers about their relationship. And coming up next in the third and final installment of this episode, Eric and I are going to talk about what, if anything, wolves can teach us about the dogs in our world. Adam will be right back with more Dogs in Our World. For more information about this show, visit the episodes page at dogsinourworld.com. And be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Support Dogs in Our World by making a donation. This fun and informative show is free to the public, but it's not free to produce. Every dollar donated goes directly towards production expenses. Help Adam improve the lives of dogs and people through more episodes just like this one. Donate today at dogsinourworld.com. I said in the beginning of this episode that it has been nearly impossible to etch out a path as a dog welfare professional without running into the topic of wolves and wolf pack behavior, whether directly or indirectly. In the last year, I have had more than one person ask me to teach them how to be more of an alpha or how they could be more like the boss when interacting with their dog. And Additionally, I also talk with folks who say they never let their dog dominate them or my dog knows I'm the boss. 
you know, along with just about any dog professional you see on TV or YouTube, I'm a firm believer that most household dogs require healthy, they require a healthy level of structure, rules, boundaries, and management. Uh, That being said, I have also always associated the term alpha with wolves. So why do we sometimes hear such powerful wolf descriptors, such as the word alpha, when potentially talking about a beagle that is likely napping in someone's apartment as I speak to you? One of the things, and you know, maybe jumping ahead here, is the term alpha wolf, um, and how everyone has heard of, even if you don't know anything the, about the leader wolves, of the pack. Yeah, you've probably heard of the term alpha and uh, top the pack dog leader, pack leader. Yeah, um, and this all started, you know, back in the early 1900s. There were some prominent wolf researchers, and they would look at wolves in captivity and to learn about their behavior because finding and studying wolves in the wild is very, very difficult. Um, even today with the technology that we have with GPS collars and radio telemetry and things like that, it's hard to find wolves in the wild, let alone study them, you know, getting close enough to wolves Without to study them. Without freezing. Or, right, exactly. Or having the wolves run away or, or whatever. And towing all the equipment with you. Right, right? exactly. Mm-hmm. And so what they did is they had wolves in captivity and they'd look and see the behavior of wolves in captivity and they'd say, okay, well, that's that's probably how they, they interact in the wild. The problem was captive wolf behavior is is quite a bit different than, than wild behavior and specifically with the term alpha. Um, there's a guy out there. His name is Dr. Meech. He's he's really the preeminent wolf researcher out there. Um, he still does a lot of stuff today. And he's one of the ones, and he, he actually made a YouTube video about this, about how he, it's almost his fault because <laughs> he coined the term or, or used the term alpha in one of his early books in the 1970s that went into mass publication. And so everyone learned about the term alpha, which implies this top animal fighting for position, you know, fighting for dominance, you know, ruling with an iron fist, that sort of thing, keeping the other ones in check, um, because that's what they saw in captivity. Um, But as as they learn more and more about how wolves live in the wild, they learned that this actually doesn't happen a lot. In the wild where they actually have a little bit of control over what's happening to them, right? Exactly. And so uh, the biggest thing is- You don't have to behave as desperately in the wild, right? Right. um, The biggest thing is, sure, there's still top animals in in the pack, but what it is in the wild, what we found out is that wolves are, it's essentially just a family of of wolves. So you have a lone male and a lone female. They come together, they find each other, they have a litter of puppies. Those puppies naturally look to their parents for guidance. and, And so those- those two animals, you know, whatever their personality may be, they are what you might call the the alphas or what historically they used to call the alpha. Um, and then wolves, they grow really fast physically, but mature maturity-wise, um, you know, it's, it's two to three when they finally reach full adulthood. And so even even at one year old, those wolf pups are are almost full size, hard to distinguish from the adults, but they're still essentially big puppies. So we have another litter of pups that are born, and now these the second litter has older brothers and sisters, and they naturally look to them for, you know, kind of guidance and and how to be. And so like, so as you can kind of see this, the hierarchy kind of forms itself in wolf packs. And then what happens is over over time, it sounds like. So. Yeah, just with the with generations, um, as generations come and go, that's you know just a lot of times simply the age is is what decides who's top dog and and that sort of thing. Um, and when wolves in the wild reach maturity, 
most times they will strike out on their own, become lone wolves for a time, find their own mate, start their own territory. So there's no need for all of this dominance displays, all this dominance this fighting. Constant that, co- and fighting, this constant competition right. amongst family members. Right. right. Now, certainly there's dominance displays and things like that, but what they were seeing in captivity, like it's it's just not there in the wild. It's, 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 it's a little bit more harmonious almost. Um, and I think it's because... It, it boils down to the ability to naturally disperse. Um, if you have this captive group of wolves and they can't disperse, they can't find their own mates, start their own territory, then they have to fit in with with these adult animals. They have to find that place in the pack. And that's when you start to see a lot of dominance displays and that sort of thing. And we can call that unnatural. Yeah, and, and in a way that, that is unnatural. Um, and so that's the thing is... The term alpha isn't so much wrong as it is, it just implies a lot of baggage with that term, that this animal is this top, tough, big, strong and alpha is wolf. Always, and is always on his toes. Always on to his toes, he, yeah. always always putting the other wolves in his place, when really that's not the case. Um, that's one of the biggest differences we've that we used to think about wolves, that we look at wolves today and we say, oh, that's a lot different. Um, and going back to Dr. Meech, he, you know, he made this YouTube video saying, Hey, I was wrong, and and he goes on and to say things like, um, you know, if I had to essentially do it over, I, I wouldn't call them the alpha. I'd call them the breeding pair, or I'd call them the parents. Um, and so he's kind of he, now, you know, the person who was almost responsible for the term alpha wolf is going back and saying, hey, you know, we need to kind of relook at how we describe these wolves. So then, what does that mean to me, uh, and what does that mean to the dogs that the the dogs in our home and in our world? And so, how I think that kind of translates is. I feel like there are some people out there that think, oh, you know, my dog is descended from wolf, so it must think like a wolf. And if wolves behave in such a way, X, Y, and Z, my dog must behave in such a way when (laughs) we might have a misunderstanding that dogs think like wolves on top of the misunderstanding that we think wolves act in a certain way. So there's, it's kind of like... And what appears to be a false, kind of a false... uh belief right yeah so we have kind of the skewed perception of how wolves live in the pack and we try to apply that to our dogs when dogs you know i don't really believe you know think like a wolf um maybe i don't don't know maybe i'll get some hate mail for that but i i don't think i think dogs are so different than wolves now even though they are descendants from wolves that they're so different there's been hundreds and thousands of generations in between wolves and dogs in some cases that that they're they're almost separate species now in order to get some uh, perspective on the topic i asked eric to kind of describe his personal relationship with the wolves that he cares for i definitely have developed a bond with the wolves um whether that bond is reciprocated from the wolf is <laughs> up for debate um i will say I have a relationship, I feel, with all of the animals, the wolves and wolf dogs here, but it's not the same kind of relationship that I ever had with, with a dog. Um, wolves are just so independent. They're, they're a lot like cats in that regard. They're very independent, very aloof. Um, aside from wanting me to give them some food, uh, they don't look to me to do a lot of stuff. And so there's very few animals here, even having known me for some of these animals have known me since I've been here um, for 10 plus years. Um, there's very few that'll come up and wag their tail and, and are excited to see me and, and that sort of thing. They're interested, sure, but as far as like a close-knit, 
relationship. Um, you know, I'm close to the wolves, but I feel like sometimes the wolves are like, oh, it's, it's you. How, how are you doing? Okay. If you don't have food, then I'm going to go back to my nap. <laughs> Eric continued to tell me about some uh, hands-on research that's actively being done on captive wolves in Indiana in order to learn more about exactly to what extent uh, these wolves can be domesticated. Apparently, even these human researchers who raise wolves in ways that are similar to domestic dogs, even they don't view their roles in terms of alpha or beta. So how, how do dogs look at people? That, I think that's a huge question. And I actually want to go back to how do, how do wolves look at people? Um, and I want to bring in uh, to play what Wolf Park does in Indiana. Have you heard of Wolf Park? So Wolf Park is a wolf facility, and they are all about behavior research um, and um, behavior studies. And, and they, ha- they essentially wrote the book on wolf behavior. They are one of the first ones to create a wolf ethogram, which is just a catalog of wolf behaviors. Um, and they really wrote the book on wolf socialization. Like, what do you have to do to take a wolf puppy and get it to the point it is comfortable around people? Um, and so, you know, this is maybe a long story, but what they do is they take wolf puppies at 10 to 14 days. And for the next three months, 24 hours a day, those puppies are with people, um, and they get they get socialized through all different things: cars, different people, leashes, collars, other dog, you know, all kinds of things. Um, and it's so time intensive, and there's so much effort that's put in to these to socializing these wolves. And the idea was, well, we have these wolves that are so comfortable with people that they people are almost invisible to them. That they go about and they interact with each other, um, and it's. The idea was that's how you solve the problem of seeing wild wolf behavior and how you can see it in captivity is that these captive wolves are so socialized, they're not worried, they're not thinking about people at all. They're going about their normal business um, and and maybe we can get a more accurate glimpse of wild wolf behavior in these wolves that are so comfortable with people um, that that they're almost not affected. Of course, you can argue that they're so changed that maybe that you won't see that kind of behavior. But the point is, um, the people at Wolf Park go in uh, with the wolves and they interact with them. Um, and I think if you were to ask any of the staff members at Wolf Park, are you a part of their pack? They would laugh at you and say no, um, that the wolves are, have their pack, but that they view people as this something different. I got to say, as I observed some of the wolves and coyotes at Wolfhaven, there were certainly times when I saw some similar behaviors that reminded me of dogs. You look at wolf behavior and you look at dog behavior. Sometimes we say dog behavior is just kind of watered down wolf behavior. Like it's not as intense. It's not as you don't see all of the behaviors um, and it just doesn't have that wildness to it, really. Um, and, And so that's why a lot of people think, I think, say, oh, well, you know, I, I see that resemblance of behavior in wolves in, in my Labrador or, or my little poodle. Um, and so it, it must be part wolf, and that's because it came from a wolf, or maybe not that it's part wolf, but that because it's descendant from a wolf that it, that it has those behaviors. And, um, and so I think all dogs, to a degree, would exhibit some sort of wolf, wolf behavior. And what about those of us who have or know someone who has multiple dogs uh, at their home? Do those dogs follow the same kind of pack order or social hierarchy as wolves? Is that watered down too? Uh, that's that's tough to say. Um, I don't want to say 
they don't follow that social structure. I don't think they follow it as closely as, as wolves do. Um, and I think it depends on the individual dog that you're talking about too. So, so many dog breeds and dogs themselves are individually so different. Um, and there's I, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of variation there's a lot of within dogs. dogs. Have, there's yeah. a lot of dogs that don't live with other dogs too. Right. Exactly. And so, you know, I think if you have, I, I think for any listeners, listeners out there that have a, a group of dogs together, um, maybe their own small little pack of dogs. Um, I imagine they would see some, some sort of, you know, pecking order maybe in, in some cases, maybe, maybe some people out there have a group of dogs and they don't see a pecking order. You know, as I continued to dig and have Eric speak more to the comparison of wolves and dogs, he, he beautifully articulated what many forward thinking animal welfare professionals have tried to tell me, um, you know, tell me and others. Maybe, maybe we don't have to try so hard when looking to wolves to teach us about the dogs in our world. And you're almost doing a disservice to the dogs too, because dogs are so rich with experiences and, and behaviors of their own. Like, you know, it almost does a disservice to try to compare and force dogs into a role that wolves live um, when the dogs are just as unique and deserving of, of study and, and research and understanding how dogs think um, by themselves. And I think that's a great place to wrap it up. That's our first episode. Yeah. Thanks for hanging in there with me. Uh, in the beginning of the show, Eric Wilbur from Wolfhaven International provided us with a brief history of wolves in North America. He also caught us up on their current status since the 1970s and gave us ideas on how both you and I can help wild and captive wolves. Then in part two, Eric and I chatted about the popular theories regarding how we got the dog from the wolf. I still want to know what you think, though. Artificial, natural, village dogs? Or is there another popular theory we didn't mention? Let us know. Let us know in the comments section. And finally, in the last segment, Eric explained why the term alpha is outdated and comes with a lot of baggage. He reminded me that Maybe I don't need to try so hard to find answers about dogs by looking to wolves. Yeah, dogs share many similar or watered-down behaviors with their wolf cousins, but maybe continually trying to compare dog behavior with wolves is similar to me trying to get along better with my roommate by looking at chimpanzees. It's possible, but you know, maybe I'm barking up the wrong tree. <laughs> I think, too, that when we look at ourselves or dogs as the alpha, we run the risk of viewing our relationships in an adversarial way. You know, the, the talk I had with Eric was a nice reminder that maybe us humans are more than pack members to dogs. Maybe it's something more special than that. Um, there are comparisons that can be made. But for now, if I want to keep learning about the dogs in our world, I should simply continue studying dogs. I want to thank uh, Wolfhaven International for their unconditional support. Uh, if you search for their Facebook page, don't forget the organization's full name, which is Wolfhaven International. Uh, their full Facebook address is facebook.com slash Wolfhaven I-N-T-L. Wolfhaven I-N-T-L is their Facebook address. Finally, before signing off, I really want to thank those of you who donated to this project. 
Thank you so much to Susan in Washington and Andrew in Philadelphia. Your donations actually went towards the equipment that we used to record the wolf howl that you all heard. So thank you. You know, yeah, there's room for improvement, I know, but if you think I'm onto something here and you would like to hear future episodes of this show, please consider donating whatever you can by navigating to the donation link at dogsinourworld.com. Also, don't forget we have pictures from the Wolfhaven visit and a newsletter that you can sign up for in order to receive important updates about the show. It would be a huge, huge help. I know all of you could do this, please. If you could leave a comment in iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to this podcast, uh, doing so is going to help other people uh, find the show and find the podcast when they're searching for it. So um, one last thing, one last thing. I I couldn't have gotten this project off the ground without the help of some really generous and talented people. Thank you to Lisa Harper, Josh Crouchy and their dog, Bird. Uh, also, thank you to Margaret Shermer, her dog, Davey, and their entire family for their support. Thank you to Phoenix Mercer, my professional mentor. And last but not least, I want to thank a little French bulldog, Boston Terrier mix named Jelly, who was the inspiration for the theme of today's episode. Please tell your friends about this show, and I will talk to you soon. Music